0: Support for Defiance comes from Kraken. Consistently rated the best and most secure Bitcoin exchange, Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy and sell Bitcoin. With 24-7, 365, world-class customer service, you can trust Kraken to support you, whoever you are, wherever you are. Available at kraken.com or via the mobile app, which is available on the Apple and Android app stores. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. Can you just give me a bit of your kind of background and what's led you to these kind of interests that you have?
1: Yeah. So I uh, was born in New York City. I grew up at, just outside of New York. I went to school in California. I was undergraduate at Stanford. There I started getting really interested. Actually, prior to arriving at college, I got, started getting really interested in the Middle East. I'd spent a summer abroad in high school in Cairo. And that was kind of random. That wasn't, I didn't choose Cairo as a destination, although I was thrilled with it when it was assigned to me. And so when I got to university, I spent uh, a lot of time studying Arabic, modern Middle Eastern history. And when I graduated, I applied for something called a Fulbright grant, um, which is an American grant. Your American uh, listeners may be familiar with it. And in my particular case, the grant that I won sent me back to Cairo for a full year, really as a very freelance researcher with very few, you know, kind of restrictions on what I did with my time. And what I ended up doing was spending a lot of time really honing my Arabic, which was pretty good coming in, but got much better while I was there, and studying the secular opposition to the non-religious opposition to the Egyptian government. And it was really the people, the descendants of that group. I was there in the 90s. It was the descendants of the folks that I was researching, spending a fair amount of time with, who basically triggered the 2011 revolution, which, of course, was annihilated in a counter-revolution um, by the Egyptian military and the dictatorial forces that surround it, so that got me really interested in the Middle East. And you can't help but take an ancillary interest in the phenomenon of terrorism when you're living out there. Um, when you know people you know with has happened to me when I was in Cairo, subsequent to my visit, um, start getting assassinated, and that was because they were secularists. And there's a whole story there I won't go into. And then I became a tech entrepreneur, and that was the bulk of my career. I moved to Silicon Valley in uh, the late 90s uh, as a non-technical person, but I founded a music service called Rhapsody. I founded the company that created Rhapsody, which really was the first Spotify, and that's not an exaggeration. We were the first company throughout the world to get unlimited catalog or full catalog licenses from all the major music labels and hundreds of indies. And we created and launched um, the unlimited on-demand streaming model, which Spotify later really popularized. We were in the early 2000s before people were ready for that. And I became really a tech entrepreneur. But after I sold that, I really always wanted to be more of a writer and a thinker and a creator. I think that's more my nature. And so I started writing a lot. Um, I wrote a book called Year Zero, which very briefly and very barely, I'll be clear, became a New York Times bestseller. It is uh, the tale of a vast alien civilization that is so into American pop music, they inadvertently commit the biggest copyright infringement since the dawn of time, thereby bankrupting the entire universe, not based on a true story, I should point out. And uh, I started writing other speculative fiction that dealt with superintelligence, synthetic biology. And synthetic biology is a field of boundless promise that electrifies me when I think about that which it may bring to us and our descendants, and it involves modifying DNA, or in some cases RNA, to create novel life forms that never arose in nature and probably never would. And in its best expressions, which is the overwhelming majority of its expressions, those things that are created are intended to make life easier and better and and richer and more flourishing. For humans. It is still in its early days, I would say, although SynBio has been with us, and I'll use the abbreviation SynBio for synthetic biology to save us an enormous amount of time. And SynBio has been with us for a number of years, but it's still in its birth in ways that I'd even argue the digital technology is still in its early days because, gosh, it's advancing with insane speed, and there's really no sign that that's going to slow down. I mean, there might be some laws of physics restraining digital technology at some point, and synbio. But synbio is really, really in the very early innings at this point. And as, when I released a, a later novel called After On, I decided I wanted to do a podcast, so you and I have something in common, in which I interviewed, it was just going to be a limited series, seven or eight scientists and other thinkers who had quite a lot to say with some of the deep technologies and other issues that were in this novel called After On, which dealt with toxic social media, super intelligence, issues of neuroscience, questions of consciousness, and synthetic biology. And I interviewed a lot of scientists as I was writing this novel, and you're restrained as a a storyteller from going into the kind of depth you might want to go in celebrating the science and talking about how cool it is because there's this thing, it's a technical word, most non-writers don't know what it. it's called, a plot. <laughs> and you hijack your own plot if you end up with these 20-page digressions about how cool bio is. So I thought that these podcast interviews with seven or eight experts would be a really cool way to get deeper into these subjects myself and really to convey the beauty and the gravity of these technologies to the readers who felt like going there. And it was just, you know, something fun to do. I'm now 50 episodes into those that limited eight-episode series, and it's become very science-y. I'll note also it's on hiatus currently because I've been working on some other projects, but I'm about to spin it up. So I'll do a season. I'll go away for a few months. I'll come back again. And I have ended up doing a lot of interviews with people who work in synthetic biology and also neuroscience and also astrophysics and lots of other areas. But SynBio became a real fascination for me. And I started worrying as I started interviewing more and more people about its potential dark side. And the dark side of synthetic biology, which will, of course, go into great detail, goes a little bit like this. Um, It's an exponential technology. That's a term that gets bandied about, and it's a powerful term, and it's a good term. And there's a few other exponential technologies. The one that most people are familiar with is computing. And what that means is, rather than getting a little bit better year after year after year, as all of the great technologies of the industrial and agricultural revolution that transformed us and really shaped our psyches did, exponential technologies double in power with great rapidity. Maybe it's every 12 months, maybe it's every 18 months, but they double and double and double and double. And our brains are very poorly configured to grasp the ramifications of that because our ancestors, growing up on the savannah tens of thousands of generations ago, when the intuitions and the proclivities and the drives that still form who we are, and above all intuitions, were being forged, we didn't encounter exponential processes, or at least they weren't visible to us. So we don't have good intuitions for that. And what happens with an exponential technology is something that was formerly impossible. That is a modern day marvel. That is something that just makes brains twist in the most delightful way. Wow, humans can now do that? Those moments come along in every technology of consequence. But what happens with an exponential technology that that thing That this genius in an ivory tower or a deeply funded corporation, one genius alone was barely able to pull off with the tools of the day and the horsepower of the day and with gigantic budgets and with access to science and knowledge none of us will ever access. That feat will become a trivial thing for a bored kid on a rainy afternoon in a very short number of years maybe high single-digit number, maybe double-digit number. I did a TED Talk, which you may link to, um, about these topics. And I made the point that, I'll get some of the details wrong, if you wanted to play checkers against a computer in the 1950s, you had to be this one particular brilliant person who had access to one of about a dozen very high-end revolutionary IBM computers, very expensive. And you had to have this particular person's, I think his name was Sam, Albert Samuel, I'll probably get that wrong, Nobel adjacent brain, he never won a Nobel Prize, but boy was he smart, in order to teach a computer to play checkers, right? That was in the 50s. And the very notion of a computer playing checkers in the 50s, I wasn't around, but I'm sure minds bl- were blown by that. Today, in order to do that, you just need to know someone who knows someone who knows someone who owns a telephone. Now, that is an incredible proliferation over, in human scales, the batting of an eyelash. And what we need to understand with synthetic biology is that precise phenomenon is going to happen again and again and again. So, when we see the staggering, crazy, amazing, frightening things that the most ingenious scientists in the field, with all kinds of protections that are inherent to their laboratories, but also the protections that are inherent to only somebody who's been unbelievably successful and has marched through life and cleared rung after rung after rung of a very steep ladder, that also weeds out a lot of people who might just, you know, pick up a shotgun and rob rob a liquor store, right? Like, these are very well-procured people with unbelievably rare powers. The things they can do will be in the range, the budget range of a high school bio lab someday. And when I say someday, I'm not like talking about 2150. I'm probably talking about 2030 something. Now if the panoply of things that are available to a brilliant computer science, let's go back to computer, let's go back to the early 80s, if the panoply of things that a truly rare, gifted, high budget computer scientist can do in 1980, would include writing a computer virus, odds are that particular genius ain't going to do it. He's not being paid to do it. He doesn't have the mind that suggests this is a good idea. Not going to happen. Fast forward just a few years, computer viruses are saturating the digital world in the 80s and certainly more as computers became more and more networked and obviously in the day of the internet, etc., because it just became easier and easier and easier and easier and people with all kinds of budgets and psyches and motivations became capable of doing that. And for us, it can be a devastating life event to get hacked in a terrible way or it could be a minor hassle to always have to upgrade virus protections. But at the end of the day, that doesn't destroy the world, at least not yet. Now, when we get to the point that grumpy 8th graders can shut down the international power grid, it could destroy the world, but we ain't there yet. Synthetic biology, on their hand, this is our wiring. And those things that the geniuses in the ivory towers could do today if they were really bad people, and thank God, for the most part, they're not, those things are already terrifying. I would say that many people, in academic and commercial labs, if they were twisted in exactly the right way, could probably at this point destroy humanity. I mean that literally. And how many people is that? Is it dozens? Is it hundreds? Probably more like hundreds than dozens, probably more like hundreds than thousands. I don't know the precise number. Nobody does. But it's a much higher number than the number of people who could have, if they woke up on the wrong side of the bed, destroyed the world during the Cold War. That number was roughly two. And we spent... Trillions of dollars, quite rightly, during the Cold War, creating a system of tripwires, ways of letting steam out of the system, diplomacy, conventional armies, all this apparatus to make sure those two, generally very well adjusted, very well educated people who really, really didn't want to destroy the world, making sure they indeed did not. Trillions of dollars, two people. I would say at this point, it's hard for me to imagine. It ain't hundreds right now who could come pretty damn close to that if they really, really went feral. And that number is not going to stay at hundreds. It is going to grow exponentially, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions. Now, who would ever do such a thing? I don't know. Let's ask the guy who killed 56 people in Las Vegas just for the joy of it. Oh, actually, we can't. He's dead. Let's ask the Columbine kids, ooh, also dead. Let's ask the pilot of that German wings plane who killed 144 infants and retirees and people from every age in between. Oh, no, he's dead, right? Every year, our society, our psyche, our phenotype generates about 800,000 people who end their own lives. It's a terrible thing. Every one of those things is a tragedy virtually none of those people take anybody with them, but some do. Of those who take someone with them, very, very few on a percentage basis decide to take as many strangers with them as possible, but some do. Of those who take as many strangers with them as possible, a completely unponderable number would take thousands if they could. They just don't get to because technology doesn't allow it. An imponderable number would take millions or billions or even all of us. We don't know what that ratio is. But what I can tell you is that in my country, the United States, probably not as true now that we're under COVID lockdown, but there has been over the last few years an average of one mass shooting per day. And some of those people are suicidal. And some of those people kill as many strangers as they can. And some of those people would kill all of us if they simply could, but they cannot. But that could change. In fact, That's going to change. The number of people who could kill all of us has grown far beyond two. And whatever lowish but not low enough number it is now, it's going to grow way beyond that because of this wonderful, genuinely sparkling, promising, immaculate in some ways technology called SynBio is amoral. It doesn't have a moral code built into it. It's amoral. It's just a tool like a knife or a hammer can do wonderful generally productive but occasionally terrible things likewise a gun likewise a commercial jet commercial jets have a pretty good ratio of doing good things versus bad but there's four instances that i can think of in relatively recent history in which commercial pilots got to that point of self-destruction and narcissism where they said i'm going to kill everybody on board and those four pilots each of them killed far more people than any mass shooter in history And the mass shooters kill far more people than the mass stabbers and the mass hammerers, which sounds like a sick joke or a black humor punchline. But there are mass stabbers. There are mass hammerers. They happen in China. Because the deadliest implements you can buy at retail in China are hammers and knives. And there are mass school attacks. But they tend to have very low single-digit victim counts. Whereas In the United States, there are often dozens because guns are more deadly than knives. And planes are more deadly than guns. And technology is not stopping at commercial jets. And so that's, you know, encountering that stew of thoughts through the, my podcast, through the book that I wrote, which did have a symbiote terror subplot in it, and certainly saturating in the environment that we're in right now with a coronavirus, which is a very, very, very moderately deadly and frightening pathogen compared to some that have already been made in labs. All of this is putting it more rather
0: than less on my mind. That's a stunning entry into an interview. <laughs> okay, so there's a couple of things I, I just want to ask before we get into the detail. Do you have a personal interest in understanding whether humanity will destroy itself? Like, that's the kind of theme I felt through reading the Medium articles that there's like an interest there to see if, if humanity will destroy itself.
1: Well, it's more than an interest in uh, doing what little I can to prevent us from doing that. Cause I think that would be a tragedy, you know, even greater tragedy than I think in, intuitively all of us would recoil from that notion at, at, at the most profound level. And I do, but the more you think about it, the more awful it actually becomes than even it sounds at first blush, because you're not only foreclosing everybody's present, you're robbing everybody of their future and you're robbing everybody who has not yet born, been born yet of their future. And if you look at the arc of technology and human flourishing, I mean, there are terrible hiccups along the way, but generally speaking, it is boundlessly more awesome to be alive today than it was during the dark ages. And it was probably a lot better to be alive during the dark ages, at least for a lot of people, than it was you know, in the Stone Age when a remarkably high double-digit percentage of people died at very early ages of human violence. And so things generally are getting better. And because I am a very, very, I mean, you might not tell it from my opening statement, I'm a huge optimist. I'm a huge optimist. And I think that the things that we will achieve with synthetic biology and many other technologies are going to bring so much more joy, extinguish so much more suffering, bring so much more equality, unleash so much more creativity, that the world we stand to build over the coming century is something that's unbelievably beautiful. And to forestall the creation of that is just a staggering, staggering cost. So I'm very, very interested in doing what little somebody who's a writer and a podcast and a science fiction guy and a former tech entrepreneur can do to try to forestall this. And really, not being a synthetic biology expert, I can tell stories. And I can give interviews and I can do Ted
0: talks and I can write and that's what I'm doing. You've arguably entered into the world of journalism as well. Yeah,
1: definitely. I mean, um, I mean, I've written, I wrote a cover story for Wired long, long ago. That's one thing I'm like super proud of. It was, so that was journalism. I've written pieces that have been in the, uh, the, the wall street journal, a bunch of different things written for, but, but I don't think of myself as primarily a journalist. Cause I think journalism is a, an inc- extraordinary craft that has learned over decades and I wouldn't appropriate that title for myself. I'm more of, I guess, like a essayist, a polemicist. Maybe it sounds very pompous. so I got to come up with a better word, but I'll thinker. But I do that. I think and I, I synthesize and I do have really good access to an incredible diversity of brains because because of my podcast, because of the friends of my friends, because of the people I've come to know who are my first person network, because of organizations I'm involved in, like TED, Council on Foreign Relations. So I'm able to encounter a real diversity of deep thought from from very interdisciplinary people. And what I love to do more than anything is to gather a bunch of those threads and then try to synthesize them in a way that somebody who's particularly deep in one area is going to be less likely to do, and also in a way that somebody who has glancing interactions with these fields is less likely to do. And so my podcast interviews, as you've probably seen, the original interview will typically be about three hours long, and I'll, I'll typically spend 30 or 40 hours preparing for it. And then I'll distill it down for parsimony and clarity. And you know, by the time I've posted an interview, I have put untold dozens of hours getting deep into this person's thinking, their writing, their life's work, their domain, their field. And so that's a level of depth that I, I think the daily deadline pressures of true journalism would not permit somebody. And so that really unusual intersection, I, I think there's a few of a eno- few of us enough who sit at that intersection that I really try to focus on synthesizing and also making accessible, you know, trying to put things in terms that you know a smart patient person and it probably requires both, you know, you, you I don't use I, I use a highfalutin kind of perhaps annoying vocabulary, and I do try to get really complex topics across, but accessibly. So I think you've got to be kind of smart. You've got to be really interested and you've got to be patient. But if you're those things, and I think that's an enormous number of people, I try to make things that were unfathomable to me before I started getting into a particular topic. If I can understand them, you can understand them. If I can understand them, anybody who likes to read the New York Times or listen to NPR or, or, or do TED Talks or whatever, anybody who who engages, you know, ravenously in that form of media. If I can understand it, they can understand it. My job is to make it accessible. And, and so that synthesis and accessibility, those are the things that I'm, I'm trying to focus on in my work now. And it's what I've been doing really, I'd say for the last two and a half years. And, um, you know, it's, it's definitely what I'm planning to do as far out as I can see, which is
0: never much more than a year, but you know, as far as out, out as I can see. On the symbiote side, Just so people understand, what are the benefits? What is is the good that can be done with Simbi? What are the interesting projects and things people are doing that could be the good side for the good things of humanity? Okay, I'm a science fiction writer, so I'm going to take
1: a little bit of sci-fi license here. But everything that I'm going to talk about is very deeply plausible. And none of the fewish things, I don't even know what they're going to be, but I'm going to to come up with a cool list here. Um, None of them are immediately on offer. But when you think of the horsepower of doubling and doubling and doubling and exponential technology, we can, we can postulate rationally and more than just plausibly that, that they're coming pretty soon. I'd actually like to start with you know sort of a, a data point from the recent past that will give people a sense for how awesome this doubling power is. There was a thing that everybody will remember the name of, I believe, called the Human Genome Project ran for 13 years. It started in 1990 and ended in 2003. It got all kinds of headlines, quite rightfully, in the scientific press before, during, and after. And it cost about $3 billion. It took in, inhaled the efforts of hundreds, if not thousands, of the greatest minds in life sciences. And again, $3 billion, 13 years. Its job was to sequence, which is a fancy way of saying read, a solitary human genome and it's actually even more modest than that for reasons I won't get into. It's kind of half a genome, depending on how you look at it. That feat, that $13 billion, I'm sorry, 13-year, $3 billion feat, which ended in 2003, that's not all that long ago, can be done for a couple hundred bucks in an afternoon by a, a, a really smart lab tech who may or may not be a college university graduate for a few hundred dollars again, I'll repeat. So, That level of all the scientists in the world for 13 years now done a lot less than 20 years later for a few hundred bucks by somebody who probably wouldn't define her or himself as a scientist as a lab tech, though. Good lab tech. Knows how to operate a reasonably fancy piece of equipment. That's the kind of speed we're talking about. So, when you are riding that wave, and that wave is accelerating and building, what can you do? Well, most human diseases will fall before this wave. Diseases that seemed intractable from time immemorial. I will be beyond astounded if synthetic biology and related life science technologies have been with us longer, don't just utterly conquer and lay waste to cancer. And that seems impossible because we and our ancestors have been grappling with that for thousands of years, but guess what? We and our ancestors grappled with smallpox for thousands of years, with human flight, with so many other things. And as soon as we conquer them three years later, we're all like, eh, you know, right? That's coming. Uh, The organ shortage, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people live abbreviated, truncated, and if they're lucky enough to get access to dialysis or even an organ transplant, really, really diminished lives for lack of enough human organs that is almost certainly going to be conquered by SynBio. Um, in this particular case, i just a little bit of detail. There's a big push in the 90s to make basically pigs become great organ donors for humans, but it ran into this intractable wall because there's dozens of retroviruses that pigs are vulnerable to that don't really do anything to pigs. It's, they're just in their genome, but they're devastating to a human, made transplants impossible. There are now transgenic pigs, both in China and the United States, from which all these retroviruses have been banished. And if things go as they are likely to go, uh, pig organ donors are going to basically get rid of the horrible crisis that we have in a terrible inadequacy of kidneys and other things. Now, vegans may not be happy about that. I myself am not vegetarian, but I'm pretty close. But if we're okay with pigs currently being slaughtered for sausages and bacon and other things like that, and for now we're okay with that, You know, that's something that is also a pretty good gift for a pig that's going to be slaughtered for meat. Now, going beyond that, those pigs will not have to suffer or, or live probably very comfortable lives and then die for their organs because clean meat is another one. Lots of people are excited, very rightly, about Impossible Foods and Beyond Burgers and all these wonderful meat substitutes that are coming online. They ain't meat. They're still plants. It's a really good veggie burger, that Beyond Burger. Very, very good. What's next? I mean, there's one company. The most interesting one to me is called Memphis Meats. Uh, they're here in the United States. They're in the Bay Area. This is meat grown in a vat, but it is cellularly and molecularly identical to the meat that would come from a sentient being, but it doesn't come from a sentient being. No animal ever lives, suffers, has its life abbreviated, lives in a factory farm, etc. That is meat. And the carbon footprint of the meat that's generated in this manner, and this is still we're going to start seeing this on shelves in a very low single digit number of years, but not yet. That is meat that will be generated with a tiny carbon carbon footprint. And whatever those of us in the West who eat as little meat as possible, but are not quite perfect like me or are, you know, true vegetarians, true vegans, etc., whatever choices we're making. The fact is that there are lots and lots of people in the world uh, who suffer malnourishment and malnourishment that could be addressed to a significant degree by an addition of meat to their diet which is inaccessible to them financially. And this kind of clean meat will, at some point, and I don't think it's a, maybe this is a large single digit number of years, but it's going to be more flavorful. It's certainly going to be more ethical. It's going to be way, way, way more carbon friendly, and it's going to be less expensive than meat, than traditional meat. When that happens, you're going to see a pivot like what we saw in online music. I mean, there was a time when it was just seemed defied reason that people would not physically collect music because they'd been doing that for generations and generations. And when we came along with this cockamamie idea called Rhapsody, which said they're not even going to download music. They're not even going to want to have the bits on their hard drive. It seemed insane, but at some point physical music lost on all fronts. It was too expensive. It was too cumbersome. It was too high friction. It was this, it was that. And in the blinking of an eye, it almost ceased to be same thing will happen with meat i think that's a big deal disease meat all the carbon we're pumping into the air fossil fuel based i think it's going to take a little longer people have been disappointed with how long it's taken but synbio based biofuels that again don't require massive fields of corn that could be eaten getting turned into ethanol you know the climate crisis will be largely if not entirely cured by synbiotechnologies i think a lot faster than most of us dare to hope So there's so much promise that is on the near-to-intermediate-term horizon. All of it does feel like science fiction because, again, our minds don't do exponential change intuitively. We don't think of something that is barely possible, if not at all, and then say everybody's going to be doing that in eight years. We don't say that intuitively, but it happens all the time. And again, just look at computing technology.
0: Can you talk to me about what happened with h 5 N one.
1: Yeah, this is really scary. So um, there are lots of different strains of influenza. Many of them are denoted, in fact most, maybe even all of them. I'm not a specialist in this area, by combinations of numbers in the letters H and N. H five N one is a particularly deadly strain of influenza. It kills about sixty percent, six oh percent of the people who are infected with it. So depending on what numbers we believe, that's maybe fifty to hundred times more deadly than the coronavirus that's currently stalking the world. But it has a characteristic that I think we can all get behind, which is it's almost impossible to catch. It's very, very, very uncontagious. Kills more people than Ebola, but really hard to catch. So hard to catch that um, I haven't checked the numbers since I did this TED Talk a year ago, but as of a year ago, a lot less than 50 people had died from it in, I think, substantially more than five years. Not quite clear on those numbers, but something in that, that range. Now, were this ever to become contagious, it would have an impact that is terrifying to contemplate. Let's imagine it became merely as contagious as the coronavirus. So imagine what we're going through right now, only instead of a half a percent to one percent of the people who are afflicted, maybe a lot less depending on how many people are asymptomatic, dying, half the people who get it die. I don't think civilization could survive that. I don't think uh, supply chains for food. I don't think power systems. I don't think waterworks. I don't think the internet. I don't think anything could survive half of us dying horrific deaths in an incredibly compressed period of time. That's only half of the story, or maybe a 15th of the story, depending on how you look at it, because the coronavirus, contagious as it is, is very uncontagious compared to measles. So I'm going to get this wrong, but this is directionally correct. The current thinking right now is if somebody with coronavirus was in an elevator, even if they coughed, and then they left that elevator, and you entered that elevator 10 minutes later, unless you touched a surface and then touched your face, current thinking, mainstream thinking, and we're learning more and more, is you'd be fine in that elevator. Whereas if somebody had measles, was in an elevator, and you were vulnerable to measles, and they had been gone for hours. You walk in that elevator, you got it. Beasles is something crazy like 15 times, I believe, as contagious as the coronavirus. So those are two vectors, deadliness and contagiousness, transmissibility, that you really have to worry about when a disease comes along. H5N1, it's got deadliness in spades, does not have transmissibility until 2011. 2011 in the exponential time frame of synthetic biology was a really long time ago scientific term, really long time ago, many, many doublings of the engines of synthetic biology in the past. And in in that year, 2011, independent research teams, I don't know why two teams did at the same time. I I assume they were coordinating to some degree. I never really got into the deep history. But one in Wisconsin, one in Holland, created modified H5N1 strains that had all the deadliness of the original, but roughly the transmissibility of measles. Now, this thing got out, I don't know how we could say anything other than game over if, in fact, the characterization of the transmissibility and the deadliness were well characterized by the scientists who, who, who did this. And I just don't know how we could survive. This was done in 2011. And the journal Science, which is one of the two, along with Nature, most respected scientific journals in the world, um, you know, ran an article about this that said, this, this, this would be a pandemic that would cost millions of lives. And I think that that was a typo. There should have been a B in that millions. And uh, the, the, the the top advisor of the national biosecurity panel here in the United States, Dr. Paul Keim said, you know, I don't think anthrax is scary at all compared to this. And this man is an anthrax expert. Okay. So, so this is something going back again to what we we're talking about at the beginning that, you know, quote unquote, good guys, virologists who have absolutely no interest in destroying the world and every interest in fighting viruses better, created using tools and techniques and having budgets and lab equipment and postdoctoral students and tools that perhaps almost nobody else in the world had. And lo and behold, in 2011, this thing didn't get out, nor did it get out in 2012, 2013, etc. But nine years have gone by. And the underlying tools have gotten so much more powerful, so much more widespread, so much cheaper, and something very important, Something called CRISPR has been invented. CRISPR is an acronym, and it is a very, very powerful way of editing DNA and RNA. And it is a very, very powerful way of making living creatures do things that they never would have evolved to do in nature, but to do your bidding, to make organs replaceable from pig organs, you know, replaceable into humans, to make biofuels, to make clean meat, or to make H5N1 as deadly as measles. You know, it could do any of those things. It doesn't care. It's a tool. It's like a pair of scissors or commercial jet. And CRISPR technology is revolutionary. CRISPR technology already is enabling unbelievable things. It will enable many more. But it could certainly make feats like the one, not necessarily precisely the one, but like the one that were done in, H- in 2011, replicable by all kinds of people. CRISPR's taught in high schools now, as it should be. It's a really, really, really cool technology. And the high school kids who encounter it and become passionate about it and go on to get you know, uh, graduate degrees and PhDs and postdoctoral work in CRISPR might do all kinds of things to save our lives. But this ability to create something that lethal has become widely proliferate. And at the same time, in any given year, we create a certain number of guys, really invariably all guys, like the Vegas shooter sort of a, a fact aside, I don't think there's ever been a female mass murderer, I mean, or not a not mass murderer, mass shooter in the United States. So a rare case where it's not success, you know, sort of implicitly sexist to say guys. In this case, yeah, mass is a guys. And it's not like there's anything about becoming a medical student or a biology student that makes you immune from despair, that makes you immune from suicidal ideation, that makes you immune You know, from genetic or environmental insults that lead to wiring that take you to that very, very dark, awful place where the Vegas shooter ended up. People who go into the sciences, maybe with lesser frequency, I mean, I don't know, I don't think the research has been done, even if it is with lesser frequency, maybe it's with higher frequency, we don't know, but with some frequency, go to these horrible, horrible places. And, you know, I don't want to... It's really easy to cast dispersions on mass murderers, and my gut tells me to do it whenever the subject comes up. But we don't know what these people have gone through. We don't know what their psychology is. We don't know what headwinds we're battling. We don't know how much agency they have. Um, these are certainly people that went unloved for a very long period of their lives and have come to a place that hopefully we, we and nobody we care about will ever come anywhere close to. This is just what happens when you have 7 billion people bumping into each other. And so to leave all judgment out, we need to create systems to stop a confluence of those, that wonderful thing called sin bio and that terrible phenomenon called suicidal mass murder, both of which are very present in our society from ever, ever intersecting.
0: Can we talk about the different risks? There, um, so there's obviously risks with a leak from a lab. And can we talk about how that's prevented? Is there certain procedures that stop an individual from being alone working on a virus? Can we talk about that? And then secondly, then let's talk about the risks that somebody at some point will be able to be sat at home with a DNA printer and download a sequence off the, off the internet create a virus and go and start spraying it in Walmart.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, um, I'm not a biosafety expert. I've never worked in a biosafety no. lab. Okay. So I, I, but, but there are, I believe there's four levels of biosafety going up to biosafety level four, which is a pretty stringent standard. And so, you know, there is, there is speculation that's not just limited to people, the tinfoil hat conspiracy crowd anymore, that possibly the novel coronavirus did escape from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, uh, which was a biosafety four. I believe it was the only biosafety level four lab in all of China. It's, um, you know, its location could have been sheer coincidence or not. There is a series of diplomatic cables, formerly secret ones um, in the United States that go back to at least 2017, 2018, worrying a great deal about the safety procedures there. And who knows? I mean, that may or may not have leaked from a lab. I'm not going to speculate about that. I have absolutely no knowledge. It certainly is not out of the question that it leaked from a lab. And it is absolutely not out of the question that something could one day leak from a biosafety level four lab. And by the way, I don't know. I don't even think that the Wisconsin and, and, and Dutch labs were biosafety level four. It's pretty high. I mean, they might've been, I, 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 I don't know, but th- there is nothing that says the biosafety level four is to pre- prevent accidents. Okay. What I've been thinking about and worrying more is about intentional and When a biosafety level 4 is designed to prevent accidents, I have no doubt that a certain amount of thought goes into how do we prevent somebody from doing something deliberately, but it is far, far, far harder to prevent somebody who is brilliant enough to become a principal researcher in a biosafety level 4 lab much harder to prevent that person from doing something they want to do that you don't want them to do than it is to prevent them from doing something that they don't want them to, themselves to do and you don't want them to do, right? Accidents are easier to prevent than deliberate hijacking of procedures and processes, as we've seen time and time again. And the other thing you kind of touched on, you know, bedroom DNA printer, uh, downloading off of the internet, this is an important thing. It, w- when we think about what the people in 2011 did, it's hard not to carry forward an image of a comparable person, perhaps earlier in their, le- their career, but a comparable person. And scientists are usually heroes in movies and they you normally have noble observations. It's like, okay, like a, a, a 23-year-old version of that is still going to be noble and wearing that white coat and doing all they can for humanity and blah, 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 blah. Not true. Scientists are human. They're not gods. But even if it were true, a a truism about exponential technologies, about any kind of technologies, and once a brilliant thing has been done by a genius, as technology proliferates, at some point that act can be replicated by somebody who's not particularly bright at all. So I imagine it took really smart people to invent ballistics to learn how to make rifles, to learn how to make them shoot straight, to learn how to make snub-nosed pistols and automatic weapons that could slaughter lots of people. I imagine the engineers who created these things were very, very smart. But it doesn't take an academic understanding of ballistics to hold up a liquor store or shoot somebody in a street corner or shoot somebody in a bedroom in a fit of outrage or to be a fourth grader in your dad's gun collection and pull a trigger and cause a chain of reactions that was designed by a genius or a collection of geniuses over generations and blow your brains out, right? And so what I believe is inevitable, most of the people probably, I don't know, but I would imagine most of the people who unleash viruses and hacking exploits online um, did not write every single stitch of code that they're using. They're leveraging the minds, and in some cases, there'll be more brilliant minds who created tool X, Y, or Z. And the thing that was created in 2011, when that H5N1 strain, the deadly one, the contagious one, was created, that thing that was created was a virus, yes, but it was also a data file. The number of DNA base pairs in a virus is about 10,000, I think, in influenza, you know, and that's 10,000 letters, not out of an alphabet of 26, but out of four which is so much more less than 26 than 22 less. I mean, these are exponential, right? So this is a tiny speck of data. The amount of data in an influenza genome is the teeniest sliver of 1% of the data in your latest selfie. And I don't know, but I would speculate that the number of base pairs that were modified to take, you know, vanilla H5N1 and make it virulently contagious, those changes would probably fit on a post-it note. That's a speck of data. And as more and more people start creating horrific pathogen designs for their thesis, for a class project, because they can, because they're a little gothy and they think it's cool, because they're a little disturbed and don't want to destroy the world, but think this would be cool. Those things are going to start leaking out on the internet along with all of the, you know, pirated copies of The Wire and, you know, the latest TV show and, you know, the latest Adele hit. They're just going to go to those dark corners where naughty data goes, right? And they're going to proliferate. And when the tools available to a smart high school bio student can do things that the most brilliant people in the most towering ivory towers today cannot do, and that day, again, is high single-digit number of years from now, maybe, if we're lucky, low single-digit number of years. When those tools proliferate, that reasonably smart but non-genius High school kid might very well access a data file created by a true genius four years ago at Oxford, where no wrong would ever happen, but that person created this horrible pathogen. As part of a doctoral thesis, the hard drive got hacked, that file spread to the dark corners of the internet, and this really, really angry, merely slightly great high school kid downloads it and prints, hits print doesn't take a genius. We're not worried about a genius going Columbine. We're worried about a Columbine kid going Columbine. When the Columbine kids went Columbine, they were hoisting tools that generations of really really smart people had contributed to the design and manufacture of. They did not have to be that smart. And a similar dynamic will happen here unless we do some really creative, probably expensive things starting now to preclude it. And even then, I don't know what our chances are, but we might as well try. And I think our chances are pretty good again. Um I'll restate because it's not obvious. I am a big optimist.
0: Well yeah, because you know you can have all the gun safety background checks in the world, but someone can get a gun and go out and shoot a bunch of people. Or they can get a bunch of guns and put them in a hotel room and aim out at the 37th window or whatever it was down at a concert or somebody in France can get a truck and rent a, rent a truck and run over 80 people or, or, or a pilot a pilot you know the the, the captain might have to go to the toilet and the the co-pilot will crash the plane and perhaps when the uh the, the, there's different rules now there I, I don't actually know if when the the pilot goes to the toilet perhaps the air stewardess has to go into the room I don't know the rules but I'm saying there's always something around the rules, but. If we get to the point where the technology is such that we can have a home printer and you can download a DNA sequence, that's a very scary scenario. It's a terrifying scenario. And so you need good news. All of this is impossible today. Those
1: printers haven't been sold yet. They haven't been designed yet. Nothing even remotely close to those capabilities is available You know, to the best-funded scientists at Harvard and Cambridge right now. They're coming. There's no stopping them. If we tried to do something crazy like put in a technology ban, we'd basically be saying, hey, China and North Korea get a monopoly. We're just going to sit this one out. That's not a really acceptable plan. So I personally believe the way to prevent this is to not do any kind of unenforceable and probably you know, just completely saturated unintended consequences tech ban. I think what we're doing right now, which is teaching CRISPR in high schools, and getting this technology out there and getting thinking about it and getting cautious thinking about it out there, which we're doing less of a good job of, it's actually step one. Because you got to think of the, uh, you know, again, sorry for the gendered terms, but, you know, this is obviously a movie, a movie term, the good guys and the bad guys. The good guy, bad guy ratio is always pretty high. When it comes to destroying the world or not destroying the world, it's probably about as high as it gets. I mean, I'm pretty confident that Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein would have been unified in their horror about the idea of somebody destroying the entire world and they would have rallied their dark minions to protect it and prevent that. You know, like, It's a high bar of good guys to bad guys. And so the more smart synthetic biologists that we make, the more you know, thinkers and infrastructure, et cetera, we wrap around them, the more and more outnumbered the bad guys, frankly, get. You know, if you think about, it, I've never thought about this before. This just popped into my mind. But um, you know, if you imagine a world in which there are ten great bio experts, and one of them, through terrible luck, turns out to be a bad guy, you got nine good guys trying to stop that person. Whereas, if it's a million to one, the bad guys really outnumbered. And I think that that's going to be more likely the ratio. It is probably a lot less than a million person, one person out of a million who would like to destroy the world if they could. I don't know. So, we got a million cent bio guys and gals. You know, We've got that, that bad person very, very, very much outnumbered. So, that's one thing that you do. And then the other thing that you do is you you, you know you can't prevent everything, but what you can do is create put a lot of money and a lot of thought and a lot of time into creating very, very agile detection and prevention systems. You think about the worst things that could plausibly happen in 15 years now and not 14 years from now. And you you actually, I think, you should have people, and I'm not, I'm not volunteering for this myself. It's a very dark job. Um, but you have a cadre of people whose job it is to think the most appalling thoughts early before, probably not before anybody else has, but long before they're technologically possible. And start thinking about what really agile, flexible, robust, preventive systems can we create, start creating now and have in place well before this horrible nightmare I just conjured up that's going to be possible 14 years from now? What do we start building now that will prevent it and the 30,000 nightmares that I can't dream up but are adjacent to it? And I, in the TED Talk, I'm sorry I keep referencing it, but... Um, it, it it's there's a couple things toward the end of it. Talked about two things, but there's more than that. I think we can get. We're already in the dawning days of pathogen detection, of basically creating detectors that sample. You know, it's a little too late when it's in people's bloodstreams, but, you know, ideally the air that's circulating in densely populated areas like transit hubs, airports, and so forth for pathogens, for novel sequences of nucleic acid, RNA, and and DNA that seem to be adjacent to pathogens, that kind of technology can ride this synthetic biology exponential curve in the way that computers did Moore's Law. And we could go from being very primitive but barely okay-ish at it right now. We're pretty good at detecting like anthrax spores and things like that. If We really put our minds to it in certain areas. Imagine that going the way of, you know, mainframe computers in the 1950s to iPhones. That technology will get better and better and faster and faster and more and more compact. And someday it'll be as ubiquitous as smoke detectors and at some point even smartphones. We should really be putting a lot of thought into pathogen detection. If we had spent... Mere billions on a really, really robust virus—you know, kind of virus rapid response technology—over the last ten years. I'm not saying we'd have had a coronavirus vaccine within weeks. But we would have had one radically faster than we have now, using the technology that we had ten years ago, and really deliberately creating a rapid response. You know, finding the different categories of virus, of which Corona is one, relatively well known, relatively well understood, um, and really figuring out what are the vulnerabilities of coronaviruses writ large. What are the characteristics of those coronaviruses, those very few that jump from other species to humans. How could we detect one really early? Having really studied the vulnerabilities of the generic coronavirus phenotype and all the other phenotypes that we've seen out there and adjacencies to those, have we really just done that for a long time? You know, you're so much more ready to respond. Now, there's another thing We haven't seen them yet, but they're on the cusp. Um, RNA-based vaccines, very, very different from traditional vaccines. The idea behind an RNA vaccine is once you've found the enemy, you can come up with non-deadly sections of its code and vaccinate people with that kind of truncated, like code that can't do anything, code, and beef up somebody's immune system. Now, it's a lot more complex than that, but the beauty of this is if, if we hone this, and we the private sector is already doing, and this should be a major public health initiative, if we hone this, get good at this, you come up new, all all of a sudden our pathogen detectors have found this new scary thing you know, uh, emanating bizarrely you know, out of you know, southern France don't know why it's there, don't know what it is exactly but boom, we're on it, we've detected it it's radiating out, okay here is, whatever the hell it is, here's the RNA vaccine, you can then using near-term technology, not today's technology. Print that sucker, not just in Atlanta and then FedEx it out, to use a parochial American example. You could print it in every pharmacy. You might be able to print it in every home eventually. So vaccine production at the edge, very, very, very powerful broad-spectrum tool to resist all kinds of evil natural and artificial things. Do we have it now? No. Is it science fiction today? Yes. Is, is there any reason it should be science fiction nine years from now? Absolutely not. We need to start thinking of these things. And then contact tracing, obviously, there's lots of thought that's going into that. You know, if really bright minds and, and modest budgets are applied to that over a couple few years, contact tracing ideas that even the smartest contact tracing experts today couldn't even conceive of are going to be pedestrian and mundane. Because the amount of thought that's gone into that humanity has put into contact tracing up until right now is a wisp compared to that which we could put into it over the next three or four years if we keep our eye on this ball. We'll get very good at that. Another thing is machine learning and artificial intelligence can be very, very good at detecting outbreaks. It's a really fascinating paper that came out, I'm going to say about seven weeks ago, that talked about retrospectively, because we didn't know it at the time. But if you looked at searches for the term, I can't smell, which turns out to be a coronavirus symptom, not a universal one, but a common one, sudden loss of smell. If you looked at the searches under that very exotic phrase worldwide, you could predict where corona, I mean, this is retrospective, you could have predicted where the next outbreaks were coming, right? Now, again, that's cool. That's retrospective. That's what we can do in 2020. Imagine what we could do if we put, you know, a modest but significant amount of public health and commercial dollars behind getting really good at that. Why are suddenly lots of people googling a human experience, a sensory experience, a loss of, you know, some agility or something that, that nobody's ever googled in the world ever before? Now all of a sudden, you know, the googliness of that has gone up 170,000 percent in these three. Disparate geographies. That means something. But he's looking for that right now. It'd be really, really easy to learn to look for that. So what I think we need to do, starting 10 years ago, but here we are today, is create a global immune system. Well, just literally an immune system. Our immune system is an unbelievable piece of evolutionary engineering that is so agile that will encounter things that has never existed in history before and say, oh yeah, I could kick its ass and does kick its ass and we never get sick. We need to do that. We need to have some big tools, a few, really good contact tracing, symptom detection through AI, pathogen detection, vaccine distribution creation at the edge and probably four or five things I'm not thinking about. We need... A bunch of really dark people who we give a lot of Prozac and therapy to because they're going to have to spend their entire day saturating in horrible, horrible scenarios, coming up with the ideas of the things that these big tools need to be directed at and be ready for in seven years, and oh, by the way, here's three more big tools that we haven't thought of yet. None of this, I don't think, would cost even 1% of the economic loss that we currently have from this relatively trivial I hate to say it, but trivial pathogen compared to what could be next if somebody unleashes H5N1, modified H5N1. 1% of the economic losses that we're going to suffer this year would fund the beginnings of a global immune system of spectacular might. And it shouldn't be done under the auspices of the World Health Organization alone, or the CDC alone, or, or Pfizer alone. It, it needs to be something that is lots and lots of independent actors contributing to it. I don't think any one major world health actor has particularly covered itself in glory and demonstrated its boundless competence. So this is something that needs to be a lot more like Silicon Valley than IBM. And... I think that we have the wherewithal. Hopefully, we now have the motivations as a result of what we're all suffering right now. We certainly have the resources. I mean, again, 1% for economic losses. And our economic losses for round two will be essentially infinite because it's game over if we let this ball into the net. We can't. So, anyway, I'm just a storyteller and a writer. I studied Arabic and modern Middle Eastern history in university. Pretty good musician. Not really, I'm a, I'm a lousy musician, but an OK songwriter. I can tell stories. That's what I can do. You know, I'm not going to be inventing any of this stuff. But I, I I, can talk to people who are capable of it. And I can hopefully cause people to lose a little bit of sleep and think a little bit, but close with that really, 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 really important message of optimism. We can do this. And possibly, I think it's likely we never would have had what's happening right now not happened. Because we slept, walked through this entire thing. We, did, we slept, we, when SARS came along, when Zika came along, when MERS came along, we hit the snooze bar so hard that alarm code guts were, were, were raining down on the neighboring town, right? We shattered the alarm clock, said, we're going back to sleep. I don't think we're going to hit the snooze bar after this one. And let's hope that the current crisis leads to a new kind of thinking and doesn't just like, let's be ready for the next coronavirus. That would be a catastrophic mistake. We spent the interwar years getting ready for World War I when we should have been getting ready for World War II. We knew what the cost was. We need to get ready for World War II. Let's call coronavirus World War I. We need to spend the interwar years getting ready for World War II. And if we spend the interwar years getting ready for World War I, building the Maginot Line, doing a lot of other things that we wish we would have done for the coronavirus, we're going to get our asses kicked. But we need to get ready for World War II, and we need to start doing that before the dust settles. Because this dust is going to take a long time to settle. We need to start getting. We need to get on this right now.
0: One, one, one more question for you. Despite SARS and MERS and Zika, and even despite films like Contagion and Government. Um, when the government does a test, like they test the ability of the NHS to react to things like this and run models, despite all of this, I never actually thought I would live through a pandemic. Uh, uh, That may be naive. And yet here we are, and it's really surreal. It's been really some really surreal moments. But I'm living it through as somebody who's just a content creator. You're living through it as a content creator who'd been looking at this specific subject for quite some time. So, can you talk to me about the kind of range of thought processes that you've gone through because of this? When you first heard about it, just talk me through like some interesting thought processes that you've been through. I feel really, um, I feel pretty helpless and
1: and uh, and pessimistic for an optimist right now. I have been shocked by the ineptitude of the response, and at least in my own country, I've been aghast at the completely cavalier attitude that our central government has had to its failure. And we can't even make Q-tips. When I was talking about this a year ago and deluding myself with ideas that maybe, you know, TED is a great platform, Um, you know, maybe this will get out there and people really start thinking about this. I thought we were capable i still think we are capable but i thought we were adjacent to some of the wonderful technical miracles that i speculated about at the end of the talk it never occurred to me that i lived in a superpower that had lost the ability to make q-tips or paper smocks or masks and it certainly didn't occur to me that in the midst of something like this the government wouldn't consider it to be terribly important to learn relearn how to make Q-tips, which seems to be the case here. And so I think what this has illustrated for me is the fact that we're so much more remote than I imagined from creating this immune system that I described to you. And even in the throes of what's happening right now, I'm astonished by how little urgency I see again, this is my parochial view here in the U S it's been very different in different countries, but I'm saturated in the experiences of my friends and my loved ones. And, you know, I am I'm, I'm pretty, um, I'm a global citizen in my consumption of media, but still a majority of it is in and about the United States is in as is inevitable. And so I hadn't really thought about this and I'm glad you asked that question it's scary. We can't make Q-tips. We don't seem to care. And not just here, we can't as a humanity make enough Q-tips. And we seem embarrassed by it. We seem to have the Q-tip making apparatus uh, going into higher gear, but I don't see any forward thinking yet. Any. Yeah, I am really An optimist, but thank you for asking that question, which really forced me to confront what's really been going on. I think this has been, yeah, it's been awful, and I don't know really what I can do. I mean, I'm doing what I can. I'm doing a a project I think is going to be really cool for Audible. Uh, It's going to be kind of an expansion of that TED Talk. But you you know, people like me, I'm I'm just you know, normal person, old entrepreneur. I'm a writer with a modest audience. I'm a podcaster with a modest audience. I can't bump the needle all that much. And, and, you know, about as big of a stage as you're going to get, anybody's going to get, holy crap, Ted talk. Like that's big, you know, it it, it reached some people. I mean, it reached a couple million people. That's really kind of cool, but it's not flying off the shelves. Now people aren't, you know, connecting to that set of thoughts right now. They're thinking about Q-tips and my fear is that when this is over, there's going to be a victory parade and there's going to be flag waving and we won, we won, we won. We're so much better than this. We have Q-tips. It's my fear. We're going to have victory parades for World War I and we're going to say, man, 30 years from now, we're going to be ready for World War I all over again. That's just not going to do it. Actually, I do have one more
0: question did you listen to elon musk on joe rogan this no but i no i did not i'm sorry i'm a fan of technology i love technology technology enables me to get on a plane and fly to america under normal circumstances and if i want to be there the next day i can be and technology allows us to do this so in a lockdown i can still create a show with you and Technology means I can talk to my dad every day who lives in another country. And technology has done so many things in terms of health and just so many amazing things, right? But Elon Musk was talking about AI. Uh, I know that's something you've written about as well. Yeah, and it's it's another risk that I I used to leave
1: more, more sleep about until this one took over. But
0: yeah, it's a real risk. But he was also talking about neural links, and he was saying, you know, we can. Some of the things he was saying they could do would be amazing. Somebody has uh, lost their eyesight and they can restore it. Some of the things would be amazing. But the problem with this technology, like AI, like Biosynth, it always gets to the point where it can go too far. And yeah, I think with the neural links, we started talking about the fact that, well, we would be able to communicate to each other without talking because. We're going to save that brain processing power of converting a thought into speech to be interpreted. That could include mistakes. It could eliminate the mistakes in conversation. And when it got to that point, I was a bit like, Oh, I don't really like the sound of this. This, uh, there's something about humanity, which I really like. Like you can go to a comedy club and somebody can make you laugh or somebody can create a painting. And I've seen the AI bot that creates paintings and some of them were interesting, but I, I don't want us to go too far with any technology. And I just feel like, sadly, all this stuff's inevitable. Um, and it's really, tr- I find it really troubling because despite all the flaws in humans, we are so flawed. We've also done some brilliant, amazing things. And if you can step away from the bullshit, just look at the creative side, the arts, theatre, music. Uh, I think we're really interesting people. And. So yeah the the expansion of technology all these technologies and and then and then if you combine them it could be very scary you could have an AI bot that wants to create a synthetic technology to wipe us out uh, rather than the um skylink or whatever it is from terminator or rather,
1: rather uh, than the columbine guy or the the vegas yeah. shooter yeah no a, an AI that went about that would have far fewer logistical problems and moral qualms presumably
0: yeah. Yeah, I just how do you feel about the advancement of technology cuz every one of them will get get to the point where it's gone too far. That's my final question.
1: Yeah, you know, um I'm having a hard time at in May of 2020 thinking about much other than what we spoke about in the bulk of this. I mean, I think all of us who think hard about AI and, you know, about you know, what happens when a very high double digit percentage of living humans spend a very high double-digit percentage of their time in VR. You know, the meaning of what it means to be human changes irrevocably. And I think there's all kinds of these lines that we can draw out that feel very lonely and feel like our humanity's imperiled. Now, that said, I did something really fun over the last few days. I'm a big Audible listener, and I downloaded a book I read at age eight, which you've heard of, called The Wind in the Willows. And like this described, obviously, it was talking animals, which I don't think were a thing in Edwardian England, but it describes a a pace of life and a style of friendship and a, a pattern of living, obviously in fantastical terms, and it's also kind of saturated in classism, which is kind of (laughs) <laughs> you know, a little bit uncool when you listen to it, but you leave that aside. It describes a pace of living that's very different from ours. And I think if the people who were fortunate enough to live comfortable middle-class existences in Edwardian England, were able to fast forward and look at our world of Tinder and broadband and international travel and no handwritten letters and no dropping in on friends spontaneously and, 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 they would have said those people aren't human anymore. I think not all of them would have. I think a lot of them would have said, let me in. But I think a lot of them might have made a reasonable case of like those people have lost their humanity, but we clearly have not. And I think we're just certainly just as human as, you know, Mr. Badger and <laughs> Mr. Water Rat and the, theme, the human models of those people. It was really fascinating I think it was written in 1911, but it was written by a person who was pretty far along in life and was evoking his own childhood, so probably late 19th century England, but there were motor cars because, of course, Mr. Toad got up to all his problem with the motor cars, right? But it was a really interesting journey back in time, which, of course, is accessible through Jane Austen and a lot of other things. But I think there'll be, I think human nature and human values will endure, through all those things and maybe flourish in ways that we can't even be fortunate enough to imagine but we have to survive to get there and i don't know if we will
0: this show was produced by tom patterson and danny knowles our website is defiance.news where you can download previous shows and watch our films Support for Defiance comes from Kraken, the best and safest exchange for buying Bitcoin, available at kraken.com, or you can download the app from the Apple and Google app stores. If you'd like to support our work, please share the show out with your friends and family on social media, subscribe to Defiance on your favorite platform, and leave us a review on iTunes. My name is Peter McCormack. You can check out my other show, What Bitcoin Did, at whatbitcoindid.com, and I'll be back next week with another episode of Defiance.